John 21, please. John 21 in your Bibles. We speak again this evening of yieldedness. Concept rooted in submission. Concept rooted in obedience. That determination on our part to put God's will above our own, to put God's expectations for our lives above that which perhaps we would even expect of our own lives. And as we spoke of yieldedness this morning, the question we asked was this. What is keeping you from completely yielding to God? I don't ask that question to imply that every person in this room is not. I believe that many in this room are. However, as I mentioned this morning, I don't know your heart. God knows your heart. But what we see in John 21 is Jesus Christ calling a man unto yieldedness. And we see his response. This morning we looked at the first two of four points as we asked the question, what is keeping you from completely yielding to God? And I asked you, first of all, is it your abilities? Perhaps your inabilities or perceived inabilities, your fear of not measuring up, your fear that though you might have some ability, it won't be what it needs to be, or that you simply don't have any ability for God. You don't have enough eloquence to give the gospel. You don't have enough musical talent to sing and minister before the church. You don't have what it takes. Or perhaps it is your confidence in your abilities that is keeping you from yielding to God. Rather than allowing God to work through you, rather than allowing the Holy Spirit of God to minister through you, you are doing it all yourself. And in doing so, you have disallowed the Holy Spirit to use you because you're too busy trying to use yourself. It's your abilities that are keeping you from fully yielding to God. Or perhaps it's your priorities. Perhaps there's something in your life and you say, God, I'm just not willing. I know what you want me to do, but, but you can't have this. You can't have this area of my life. I'm keeping it. Jesus asked the question to Peter, lovest thou me more than these? And as he asks that question to you, as he places his finger upon that area of your life, and you say, no, I will not give it. It's mine. I like it. I want it. You can't have it. When he's looking for us to say, Lord, you know that I love thee. We're going to look at two other questions, two other possibilities, two other reasons why you might not be yielding yourselves to God, two other reasons why you would withhold complete yieldedness, complete submission, complete obedience to God's call upon your life. Our third point this evening is found in verses 18 and 19 of John 21. Is it your past failures? Perhaps it it wasn't your abilities or it's not your abilities, whether 
inability or a great ability that's being a problem. Perhaps it's not even your priorities. God, I, I, I want you to have everything. It's all yours. But the problem is some spiritual point in your past where something happened and you just determined that God could never use you again. We spoke last time about the restoration of Peter from his threefold denial in John 18, verses 13 through 27, as Jesus Christ was being tried. This failure was far more than simply a whoops moment in Peter's life. This was not a, a failure compelled by ignorance. He, it's not as if this young lady said, hey, you're, you're, you were one of his disciples, right? And he, he misunderstood the question. And he said, no, I'm not one of his disciples because he misunderstood. He thought that she was asking if he was a disciple of Pilate or something. It wasn't like that. It wasn't a misunderstanding. It was not a failure by accident. He didn't accidentally three times say, no, I am not one of Jesus Christ's disciples. This was knowing, purposed denial of association with Jesus Christ. How does a man come back from that? How does a person get back on their feet from that? Where does a man find the will to go back to serving God, to go back to being willing and able to be used by God, and then to be used by God after such an event? We spoke last time about this restoration, and as we did so, we recognized that Jesus Christ has restored him. You know, there was a time much earlier in the ministry of Jesus Christ on the earth where Simon Peter came up and asked a question to Jesus. That account is found in Matthew 18 and Luke 17. Please turn with me to Matthew 18 this evening. In Matthew 18, look with me in verse 21. Then Peter came to him, that's Jesus, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants, and when he had begun to reckon... One was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents, which, by the way, was an absurd amount of money for that time. Uh, this, is, this is clearly hypothetical. This is more money than kings had. This was a lot of money. But for much, verse 25, as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me. I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servant saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told to their Lord, unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion 
on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. When Jesus Christ spoke in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, and Peter, this same Peter, asked him, Lord, how often should we forgive? Till seven times? Till the number of perfection? Till perpetually? And Jesus Christ said, I say not seven times, but 70 times seven. Innumerable times. What did Jesus mean? As He continued with this parable, we know that parables have one truth that they are seeking to relay. That's the purpose of a parable. This parable is a warning against the sin of unforgiveness. And the question we ask as we look at this parable and we look at Jesus Christ's answer to Peter is, why is unforgiveness so terrible? Why is a lack of a heart of forgiveness so terrible? The reason is because God, who has more right than any man to withhold forgiveness from mankind, does not withhold forgiveness. Because Any man who truly repents finds forgiveness with God. And he finds it every time. So when we ask the question, how does a man recover from such a failure? How does a man recover from spiritual failure? The answer is not found in him. It's not about him recovering. The answer is indeed and in fact found in God. See, the world will tell you that failure is a stepping stone to success. That within us, is the will to succeed, which if we harness it, and if we truly believe, this will allow us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and turn failure into success. Self-empowerment is the spirit of the age. But it certainly is not from the Spirit of God. I remember when I was in elementary school, I had an art teacher. I don't even remember her name, but this was um, probably when I was in fifth grade. We moved when I was in sixth grade, so how did we move before that? And my art teacher, one day, uh, I was doing my painting like this. This is how I did it. And the kid next to me, for whatever reason, knocked over his cup of water. It was watercolor, so you have to you know, do the water and then do the paint, and then you do the paint thing and the water thing, painting like this. And the water spills over, all over my painting. Well, it's watercolor. It all kind of goes phew, like this, and it's all just one big blob. And I remember my art teacher saying, mistakes are simply a step towards success. You take it, you use it, and you make something beautiful out of it. And I took her advice, and I kind of made that mishmash of watercolor, my backdrop, and I made trees and stuff in it. And I turned that failure, that accident, that terrible thing into a success. And that's fine. That's good for art. But what is it that brings a man from spiritual failure to restoration, fellowship, and once again being used by God? It's not going to be him pulling himself by his own bootstraps. The Bible reveals that it is God who brings about beauty for ashes. With each spiritual failure, no matter how great or how small, the only hope we have to move on and to do anything for God rests in our assurances of His divine forgiveness and restoration. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We remember the lesson learned from King David who for his adulterous murder deserved death under the law but through repentance found grace in the eyes of the Lord and restoration. We consider the lesson of King Ahab one of the most wicked kings to ever walk the face of the earth. Who after humbling himself before God in 1 Kings 21-29 found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we consider the lesson of Peter. A man who outright denied Jesus Christ three times. However, found not just forgiveness but restoration to ministry. And would become a great man of God. Now, are there consequences for failure? Yes, there are. Every failure in the Bible is accompanied with consequences. But is there also forgiveness and restoration with God? Most certainly there is. And may I just state as a side note that there ought to be forgiveness and restoration not just with God, but with God's church as well. We ought to be a church that reflects restoration and forgiveness as God does. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2 say this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So here is a man, Peter by name, who had failed. Following Peter's public restoration as indicated by the threefold confession of verses 15 through 17, Jesus had something else to say to Peter. Will Peter rebound and serve God? Will Peter feed God's sheep as Jesus Christ just told him to do? He most certainly will. Look with me in verse 18. Jesus Christ speaking, He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. Jesus had promised Peter in John 13, verse 36, that Peter would follow Jesus in a little while. You recall the context. Peter asks, why cannot we follow thee? Now, I would follow thee even to death. And Jesus says, I will, you will follow me in a little while. Not now, but you will follow me in a little while. And now Jesus indicates to Peter the manner in which his death would take place. He does so by comparison. He says, as a young man, you dressed yourself, Peter, and you went wherever you wanted to go. Peter, as with all men, was a strong and capable man. He was the master of his own destiny. He was the man in control. If he wanted to go to Jerusalem, he went up and went to Jerusalem. If he wanted to fish, he went out and fished. If he wanted to stay up all night watching movies and eating ice cream, well, not at the time, but you, know, you get the picture. He could do it. He was his own man. But you know his end would be very different from his beginning. Jesus has already asked Peter about his priorities. Did he love Christ more than those things? More than the nets? More than the fish? More than even the disciples? Did he love Christ more than these things? Did, he, did Christ have a higher priority in his life? 
Well, the answer was yes. Christ did indeed have that higher priority. And with this public restoration came a public declaration of the price that Peter was going to have to pay for his devotion to Christ. The price that Peter would have to pay for his willingness to put Christ above all other things? He's going to get riches, right? He put, he put God first. He put Christ first. That means he's going to have a big house. That means his bank account is going to be overflowing. That means he's going to have a yacht on the Sea of Galilee. Not just a fishing boat. Right? No. The reward that Peter would get for his devotion to Christ would be death. In contrast to the freedom and enablement of his youth, Jesus says that when he is old, he will stretch forth his hands and be girded by another, then carried to places that he would rather not go. This was a prophecy of Peter's death. History tells us that Peter was indeed killed by crucifixion, just as his Savior Jesus Christ was. He was stretched forth. He was girded. He was placed on that cross by another. And he was taken to a place he would not go. Following this very somber declaration, Jesus tells Peter, notice at the end of verse 19, follow me. Follow me. Peter, you asked me way back in John 13, 36, why you couldn't follow me now. Well, the reason why is because it's not your time. But it will be. You are going to die for me. Follow me. Can you imagine? Could you imagine if Jesus Christ was standing in the room today and He took each of you aside and He said, Evan, do you love me more than these? And He showed all those propensities in your heart. All of those things in your heart that you would lean towards, that you would desire. Pastor Wickler, do you love me more than computers? Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than your ministry? He asks Evan, do you love me more than these things? Evan says, well, certainly I do. He says, okay. Well, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. I'm calling you to the ministry. Go and tell. Evan says, okay. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, you're going to be killed for me. You're going to be hung on a cross for me. You're going to suffer and die for me. You're not going to enjoy it. And then he says, follow me. What a statement. Peter, you told me that you loved nothing more than me. Now let me just tell you, you're going to die for me. So follow me. The dangers the hazards, the sorrows, and the sacrifices of the Christian life are not a hindrance to the man, to the woman, to the child who has already yielded themselves to God. Trials and tribulations and pain and suffering do not deter the Christian who has yielded themselves to follow Christ. And even failures, as terrible as they are, and as hard as they are to bear, and even potentially difficult in our own spirits to overcome, ought not, cannot deter the believer from yielding themselves to the ministry that their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has called them unto. What is keeping you back today from yielding everything to God? Is it your abilities? 
your inability or your capability? Is it your priorities, those things in your life that you just won't give up? Is it your past failures? Things that you've done? Things, ways that you failed God? And you say, God, with me being what I am and me having done what I've done and me having the past that I have, could you possibly? You couldn't use me. Fourth and finally this evening, perhaps it's your unwise comparisons. Perhaps it's your unwise comparisons. You say, Pastor, what do you mean unwise comparisons? Let's talk about it. Look with me in verse 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and saith, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith unto Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Having heard about his death, Peter turns and looks at John. See, it, it appears that Jesus Christ and Peter were walking at this point. We know that they had had the meal and that the meal was over and Jesus Christ apparently said, Peter, why don't you come with me? And they began walking and the disciples were walking behind them, but Jesus was speaking to Peter, telling Peter that he was going to die. And Peter speaking with Jesus Christ and when he hears about his own death, he looks back at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said, Jesus, what about John? What about him? What's going to happen to him? We don't know why he asked this question. But notice Jesus' response in verse 22. Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Jesus says, Look, Peter, you missed the point. The point of me telling you this was not so that you could have the inside track. The point of me telling you this was so that you would know that you are following me to death. It doesn't matter what's going to happen to him, Peter. You follow me. Don't worry about them, Peter. You follow me. See, a man's spiritual life is not a game of comparisons. A man does not go through his Christian life gauging his success or gauging his spirituality based upon comparisons to the lives and ministry of other men. Jesus says, what would it matter? Even if this man lived till I returned, the point is not about him, it's you following me. Take your eyes off of everyone else. Take your eyes off of everything else and follow me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. It is a foolish thing to seek assurance of success in ministry or success spiritually by comparing ourselves with others. But you know, this is how society works, is it not? When I was in Greek class in seminary, every week the teacher, in order that people could understand where they are, would place a paper at the front of the class. And he would put it on the desk and that paper had our ID number and our grade next to it. Now, the whole point of there being ID numbers instead of names is so that you couldn't go down the list and find the grades of other people in your class. It was somewhat anonymous. Unless people knew your ID number, they, they could not know whose grade belonged to who. But you know, every man would go up to that sheet 
And they would find their ID number. And they would trace it across for their grade. But you know, that was never enough. You may not know who it is in the class that has those grades, but you would always look to see how many people had a higher grade than you and how many people had a lower grade than you. And you know, even if you had a 92%, which is an A, if there were 15 people in the class that had a higher grade than you, well, then you don't feel like a very good success. But if you had that same 92% and you look and there's no one above your name with a higher grade, and you kind of smile to yourself and you say, hey, I've got the best grade in the class. See, regardless of that, whether that grade changed, it's a 92 either way, but sometimes my conception of how successful I was being in the class was based upon how many people had a better grade than me. That's how we work. That's how we're wired. We're humans. We're, we're competitive and we gauge our success based upon others. But you know, the Bible says this is not wise. This world is always comparing. Is this president better than the last? Is this football team the best ever? Are our state's test scores better than their state's test scores? But you know, the Scriptures tell us that we're not to be this way. Now let me clarify. I'm not speaking about comparing ourselves with us. The Scriptures are speaking about comparing ourselves with others. It is right and good and wise and helpful for me to compare Pastor Wickler today with Pastor Wickler a year ago. It is right and good and helpful for me to go back a year ago and listen to my sermons and, and listen to a sermon today and say, okay, where have I improved? Perhaps where have I backtracked in my abilities? Where have I improved in my ability to communicate? Where have I muddied things? Where could I go from here? In another year, how could I be better? That's good and that's right and that's well. But it is foolish for me to listen to sermons online of other pastors and for me to say, ah, I must be doing good because that pastor, boy, I could not follow his points. That pastor was so confused. That pastor was so convoluted. That, pastor's, that pastor took this verse out of context and this verse out of context. That means that I'm doing great in my pastorate. What foolishness that would be for me to compare myself, the ability that I have, the capability and the success I'm having as a pastor of Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota with some pastor in who knows whereville at his church in his situation. What foolishness that would be. And it's the same in our lives as well. When we quote Bible verses, we don't do so so that you can compare how many mess-ups you had with how many mess-ups pastor had. Your success is not found in how well you say the verses. It's found in how well you root the verses in your heart, understand the verses, and apply the verses to your life. We could all have memorized 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 through 16 and you might have said it better than anyone else. Not only did you say it word perfect, but your inflection. Every comma was taken into account. Beautifully, eloquently spoken. But you know what? If the person next to you who stumbled through the entire verse is living it, well then who's the successful one? When we pray together, it is not so that we can compare praying styles or how long each person prays. The power of prayer does not rest in how good it sounds. The power of prayer does not rest in how long it is. The power of prayer is a clean vessel pouring himself out to God. 
when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we lose perspective. Spirituality becomes a game to be won or lost. It becomes me versus you, and when that happens, other bad things begin to happen as well. People become hypocritical. So what others think of me is more important than what God thinks of me. So as long as other people think I'm godly, I feel like I'm doing okay. Then people see this hypocrisy. Children see the hypocrisy in their parents. They see the hypocrisy in one another. They know their own hypocrisy. They see the hypocrisy of the pastor and they become bitter. And they become resentful. Spirituality becomes a competition to best that other guy or that other church or that other denomination instead of an active endeavor to be the best that we can be regardless of what anyone else does. So, our final question is this. Is your unwise comparison keeping you from yielding to God? Are you afraid to do what God has asked you to do because you're afraid that other people will think you're not up to snuff? Are you afraid to pray or answer questions or speak because you're afraid that you won't sound as good as someone else? You won't sound as godly as someone else. You won't be able to trigger the right thing by your answer, whatever the case may be. Are you comparing your head knowledge, your vocal ability, or your musical talents against others and therefore not allowing God to use you because you might not be as good as someone else? See, the man, the woman, the child that is truly yielded to God is not one that hinders God's desire to use them because they're afraid of their own deficiencies because they're afraid of what others might think of them. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have been gifted by Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling. And whatever time you spend comparing your gifts, your abilities, and your ministry with anyone else is wasted time. It's wasted time. It would seem some men, having heard Jesus' rebuke to Peter, spread the rumor that Jesus had announced John would remain until the second coming, that he would not die. If that were the case, we might expect John to still be around today. However, John strongly refutes this claim, revealing Jesus' statement to be one of hyperbole, which Jesus often used, exaggeration in order to make his point. Look with me at verse 23. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the disciples should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him he shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? And this, excuse me, this is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Then John finishes his writing with a beautiful statement of the marvelous ministry of Jesus upon this earth. Verse 25, And there are also many other things which Jesus did in which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself, 
could not contain the book that should be written. Amen. So ends the epistle of John. But we aren't finished quite yet. Let's review a few things that happened following this in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus was on the earth for 40 days after His um, resurrection. He rose from the dead the third day after the Passover. That gives us 43 days, seven days before Pentecost, He ascended into heaven. Acts 1.3 Yes, is where we find that Jesus spent 40 days teaching. Jesus would speak to the 11 plus about 500 on a mountain in Galilee according to Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20. We read about that this morning where Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to 500, over 500 at one time. That was in Galilee. That was the time um, referenced in Matthew 28. Jesus is seen of James and all the apostles, according to 1 Corinthians 15.7. Jesus commanded them to tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost would come upon them in Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And then he went out to a mountain near Bethany, the scriptures tell us in Mark 16, 19 through 20, in Luke 24, uh, 50 through 53, and in Acts 1, verses 9 through 12. And there he commissioned and ascended into heaven. As we close today, let me bring us back to this question. What is keeping you from completely yielding to God? Peter is a man who, just like you and me, had every opportunity to lead just that mediocre life for God. To do what was good. To do what was fine. He could have gone back to being a fisherman, actively sought to win his fellow fishermen to Christ. He could have determined his own unworthiness through failure and spent the rest of his days on the sidelines. But you know, God had more for him. The more wasn't all happiness. The more wasn't all glory. It would mean persecution. And Peter's loyalty to Christ would eventually claim his life. But Peter's life is an example of what God can do with a man, though he has failed, who repents who confesses, who is forgiven, who is restored, and then who has a willing heart to be used by God. You know, you and I could spend the rest of our lives making excuses as well. We could spend the rest of our days in genuine service to God without giving God our all. Without yielding all. Without sacrificing all. For some under the sound of my voice, God won't ask you to sacrifice everything. For some under the sound of my voice, God is going to give you a family and place you in a comfortable home and put you in a wonderful church where you can have tremendous ministry and you can raise your children and you can live out your days in peace and happiness. For others, it might not be that way. For others, God might place His finger upon your life and say, I have something more for you if you will give me all. I have something more for you as long as you love me more than these. And that doesn't mean you're more spiritual than the one that is raising the family and living in the house and, and uh, going to the, the church and ministering in the church and, and living a comfortable life. It doesn't mean you're more godly than them. It simply means that God has a plan for you if you are willing to yield.
For some under the sound of my voice, you are where God wants you to be. You have yielded. And this is the place where your yielding has brought you. But regardless of what God might ask you to give, every believer must have a heart that is willing and yielded if they are going to be all that they are expected to be for Christ, our reasonable service. Perhaps there are some listening to me today who have not fully yielded. Perhaps it was something I mentioned today that pricked your heart. Perhaps something we didn't mention, but that the Holy Spirit has shown you. Something that has held you back from being all that God wants you to be. Let me ask you, if you know what it is, would you take care of it today? Would you be willing to yield it today? The evangelist talked to us on Tuesday about the opportunity that we would have to have fellowship with God, to have presence with God unlike any Christian in history. He was calling us unto yieldedness. Whereby we take the Word of God, we read the Word of God, we believe the Word of God, and we obey the Word of God. And God leads us in a direction and we're yielded and we're submissive and we're obedient. And so when God says, lovest thou me more than these, we say, of course, I love you more than these. And God then leads us into His will for us. And perhaps that means He strips from us some things. Perhaps He strips from us our comfort. Perhaps He strips from us our career goals. Perhaps He strips from us our health. And He says, do you love me more than that? Would you yield Him your abilities? Would you yield Him your priorities? Would you yield Him your failures? Would you even yield Him your comparisons? Would you determine by God's grace, with the Spirit's help, to be the servant of God that God wants you to be?